Welcome to the KPC Podcast. This week's message is from a special guest speaker. Hey, well, thank you. It's my pleasure to be here with you uh, this morning. And, uh, you know, people ask me, what's an astrophysicist doing on the pastoral staff of a church? Uh, well, our church is between the California Institute of Technology and the Jet Propulsion Laboratory. They're only a few miles away from the headquarters of the Skeptic Society. And we got Fuller Seminary in our backyard. So we get quite an interesting group of people that come to our church. And one of the things I do at the church is I head up a class for skeptics. And then we literally get atheists walking in off the street to join in our dialogue because that's what we stress. The number one complaint I hear from unbelievers about the church, no opportunity to ask challenging questions. And so the class I structure, I let people interrupt me anytime. And incidentally, it's live streamed. So we get twice as many people that participate in the class that are in different locations around the world than we do that are actually there uh, in the present. And we are going to have a time for questions and discussion at lunch. And uh, so you can ask any question of me you wish. I only have one rule, no softball questions. We only want hardball questions. Okay. Um, and I really appreciate your men's retreat focusing on redemption. And one of the things I've noticed as a student of the different creation texts in the Bible, as you go through all the major creation texts of the Bible, every one of them links the doctrine of creation with the doctrine of redemption. And there are passages in the Bible that tell us that God begins his works of redemption before he creates anything. Passages like 2 Timothy 1.9, the grace of God that we now experience was put into effect before the beginning of time, before God created anything. In fact, the books I'm working on right now are basically making the point that every component of the universe, earth and earth's life, and every event in the universe, earth and earth's life, plays some role in making possible the redemption of billions of human beings within a short period of time. In fact, when I speak on university campuses and address the science professors there, I say, even if you don't believe in the Christian faith, if you simply try to do your science research in the context of redemption, you'll find yourself being a more successful scientist. It's a way to put the Christian faith to the test, and we've seen many scientists respond uh, accordingly. Now, what I have noticed, oh, by the way, uh, you can see that we're on social media, uh, and I would encourage you to use social media as an outreach. I'm leading more people to faith in Jesus Christ through social media than I am through my personal events and the writing. So I'd encourage you to take advantage of that uh, as well. And uh, you can also contact me by going, texting my name to 31996. That's a portal for you to get all kinds of free videos and uh, book chapters and articles and much more. And I do answer every question I get on Facebook and Twitter. In fact, if you know some skeptic that's got questions, feel free to send them to my Facebook and uh, Twitter uh, pages. And uh, some of the books, we only have one book here that we're selling, and that's my book, Navigating Genesis. Uh, but we're giving away a free chapter 
of my best-selling book, The Creator and the Cosmos. This is now in its fourth edition. Go to reasons.org slash Ross and uh, you can get a free chapter. You can also get a free chapter of Navigating Genesis. So if you don't want to buy the book, you can get a free chapter. And my latest book, Always Be Ready, all available at reasons.org slash Ross. And this book, Always Be Ready, is making the point, if you will prepare good reasons uh, for your hope in Jesus Christ and can present those reasons with gentleness, respect, and a clear conscience, you'll see God doing supernatural things to bring you into contact with people that are, God has prepared in advance to respond to your reasons. And this book is filled with stories that look like right out of the book of Acts, only they're from the uh, experiences of myself and other people I know over the past few years. But what I want to share about this morning is uh, one of the big five. And uh, you know, there's five sets of evidences that have traditionally been effective in bringing committed atheists to faith in Jesus Christ. Uh, those big five would be the origin of the universe, the origin of life, the origin of humanity, the design of the universe, earth and earth's life to make possible the existence of billions of human beings, and then last of all, how the latest science establishes uh, the inerrancy of the Bible through the first few chapters of the Bible. That's significant because when you run into skeptics, they typically look at those opening chapters of Genesis as the Achilles heel of the Christian faith, the one place they're persuaded where the Bible got it wrong. But I'm going to share with you this morning, the more we learn about science, the stronger case we get to those early chapters are not an embarrassment they actually provide us with the strongest evidence that we can garner scientifically that the Bible is the inspired, inerrant, authoritative uh, Word of God. So we're going to be looking at the science of the past 70 years. Now, it's not just atheist scientists who think that Genesis is in real trouble. I speak on seminary campuses all over the world. And I'm amazed how often I run into seminary professors, conservative seminary professors, that basically say we're in trouble on Genesis. Here's an example. This is uh, from uh, Dennis Alexander, and he says, those who maintain the historical view of Genesis are embarrassing and bring the gospel into disrepute. And so what I'm facing on seminary campuses are professors who say, we have to stop interpreting Genesis as being historical or scientific. It's simply a metaphor or a figure of speech. Now, the problem with that approach is if you take the opening chapters of Genesis and put them in front of an unbeliever and say, what do you think this text is all about? Genesis 1 in particular reads exactly like an historical account of actual events. I mean, after all, it's ordered through in certain days. You got the phrase, and it was so, it was good. It's like the author of Genesis is going to every possible extent he can to tell you this is a chronology of actual events that really did occur by the supernatural handiwork of God. I don't think it works theologically to say this is just a figure of speech. This is just a metaphor. This is just a story about the function of creation. When you actually look at the text, 
It's clear it's talking about actual events that happen in a chronological order. Moreover, Genesis is not the only place that talks about creation. It's not even the most scientifically extensive place. If you want to get the most scientifically detailed account of creation, you'll find it in the book of Job. Job 37, 38, and 39 in particular. You've got five different creation psalms. You've got Proverbs. You've got Isaiah. You've got Romans. The Bible's filled with creation texts. And as you integrate them, it's impossible to avoid the conclusion the Bible is actually declaring real history and real scientific events that God performed uh, by his supernatural hand. And the problem is people like Dennis Alexander in their interpretation of Genesis failed to follow the biblical testing method. Now, I was taught the scientific method in grade one, grade two, grade three. We got it all 12 years. But none of my public school teachers told me where the scientific method came from. I was not raised in a Christian home, but I didn't really get to know Christians until I showed up at Caltech at age 27. However, I did get a Gideon Bible when I was in the public school, and I began to read that Gideon Bible at age 17. And uh, you know, what I discovered is that uh, the Bible is where the scientific method came from. All the creation texts in the Bible follow the scientific method. And years later, I began to read about the history, the development of the scientific method. It happened during the Reformation era, when people were encouraged to read the Bible for themselves. And in reading the Bible, they discovered that not only did the Bible command objective testing, it showed us step by step how to put things to the test. Now, step one of that uh, biblical testing method, uh, my goal, by the way, is to uh, transform Genesis 1 from a scientific embarrassment into the strongest reason scientifically to believe that it is the inspired word of God. Step one of the biblical testing method, do not interpret until you establish the frame of reference or the point of view. And when scientists tell you Genesis is teaching scientific nonsense, ask them what viewpoint are you using. My experience is they believe that the account of the six creation days is from the perspective of someone above the clouds telling us what's happening. And from that perspective, everything is scientific nonsense. But we're going to see in Genesis 1-2, it explicitly tells us what the frame of reference is. And it was Galileo who said the biggest mistake you can make in Bible interpretation is to get the wrong point of view. Well, let's start with Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, there is no biblical Hebrew word for universe. And often you get skeptics saying this is where the Bible clearly got it wrong because science tells us that the universe is first and the earth is second. What they're failing to appreciate is that there's this Hebrew phrase, shamayen arest, the heavens and the earth, with the definite articles. You only see that nine times in the Old Testament. Every time, it's referring to the totality of physical reality. Keep in mind, biblical Hebrew has a small vocabulary size. So often, what we have a single word for in English, we have instead a Hebrew phrase. The Hebrew phrase, the heavens and the earth, means the entire physical universe, 
all matter, energy, space, and time. And if you integrate all the biblical texts on the creation of the universe, they all state that not only are we speaking about a beginning of matter and energy, but a beginning of space and time itself. Now, I was reading the Bible for the first time in my late teenage years. That was the same time that physicists in Britain and South Africa were developing the first of the space-time theorems. And I brought one of those space-time theorems with me. This research paper was published in Physical Review Letters. You all got to get this thing. It's just fascinating reading. If you love tensor calculus, you're not going to be able to put this down. But you know, it ends with a paragraph that we can all understand. And the paragraph states this, that, uh, you know, uh, that there's an actual beginning to space and time. If the universe expands over its history, then there must be a space-time beginning. And only a universe expands over its history uh, will indeed uh, have the possibility for life. The fact that you're here is proof that we live in a continuously expanding universe. And by the way, for thousands of years, the Bible stood as the only book of science, philosophy, or theology that stated that we live in a continuously expanding universe, how God stretches out the heavens. But the verb there is natah, which means the expansion of what's being described. But this is what Alexander Blinken wrote in a book. He was one of the three authors of the most powerful of the space-time theorems. And he wrote this not yet a believer, but he said, with the proof now in place, cosmologists can no longer hide behind the possibility of, I'm going to have to read it here, a possibility of a past eternal universe. There is no escape. They have to face the problem of a cosmic beginning. Now, we never really identified the problem, but here's the problem. Proof of a space-time beginning implies a causal agent beyond space and time who creates our universe of matter, energy, space, and time. In other words, a miracle-working God must exist. We get all that from the very first sentence of the Bible. Now, I've traveled around the world speaking, and I've found not very many audiences know John 3.16, but they seem to all know Genesis 1.1. And Genesis 1.1 all by itself, in the light of these space-time theorems, which no physicist denies, establishes there must be a God beyond space and time that created everything. Now, this is an outline of the rest of my talk. We're going to talk about the point of view Step one of the biblical testing method. We're going to look at the meaning of the word day, but we're going to focus most of our time on a description of the order of events and in their scientific context. So point number one, the Spirit of God, Genesis 1-2, was hovering over the face of the waters. Now the frame of reference for Genesis 1-1 was the universe. But notice in Genesis 1-2, it changes the point of view from the universe to the surface of the earth. The Spirit of God is brooding over the surface of the waters. This diagram here clarifies it, that we're to interpret the six days of creation from the surface of an ocean that covers the whole surface of the earth at that time. Below the cloud layer, not above the cloud layer. <coughs> 
Now notice that Genesis 1-2 gives you step two of the biblical testing method. Don't interpret until you establish the starting conditions. And Genesis 1-2 tells us the water in the beginning covered the whole surface of the earth. It was dark on the surface of the waters. It was empty of life and unfit for life. But now God begins to form his creation miracles. And what he does in creation day one, he transforms the atmosphere from opaque to translucent. Now this is made explicit in Job 38 verse 9, where God speaks and says, I made the clouds its garment and wrapped it in thick darkness. So in the book of Job, it tells us explicitly why it was dark on the surface of the waters. It wasn't dark because there was no light. In the beginning when God created the universe, that also meant there was energy flooding the universe, filling it with light. But it was dark on the surface of the waters because the clouds of the primordial atmosphere would not let any light through. If you want an analogy, think of Venus. Venus is an atmosphere about 80 times thicker than Earth, and the only light that gets through is light at the extreme red end of the spectrum. All the rest of the visible light is blocked out, is dark on the surface of a Venus. And Earth started off with an atmosphere 200 times thicker than it has today. No light whatsoever would get through to the surface. <coughs> So that explains why it was dark. Now you can understand that the skeptic keeps the point of view above the atmosphere, then he's going to get into real trouble on the six days of creation. But putting it below the clouds transforms it from scientific embarrassment into scientific accuracy, as we'll see. But before we get there, let's look at what this word day means. Now, I mentioned earlier that Hebrew, Biblical Hebrew, has a small vocabulary size, just 3,000 words if you don't count the names of people and cities. English, by contrast, has over 4 million. And that's why we have so many translations of the Old Testament. Over 40 exists, 40 high-quality translations. You need all those 40 because you're translating from a tiny vocabulary language into an enormous vocabulary language. And virtually every Hebrew noun has multiple literal definitions. The word for earth in Genesis 1 has five different definitions. The word for day has four different definitions. It can mean part of the daylight hours, all of the daylight hours, a 24-hour period, or a long but finite period of time. Now, I didn't know Hebrew when I first picked up the Bible. But right away I recognize this word must have at least three distinct definitions because three are used on the first page. Creation day one is contrasting days and nights. That's a day for the daylight hours. Creation day four, it's contrasting seasons, days, and years. That's a day is 24 hours. And Genesis 2-4 uses the word day to refer to the entirety of creation history. That's a day as a long, finite period of time. The other thing I noticed when I was first reading the Bible, you got an evening and a morning for the first six creation days. And again, the Hebrew words for evening and morning have multiple literal definitions. I didn't know at that time, but I did know at a minimum, it's telling us each day has a definite start point and a definite end point. 
I anticipated finding an evening and a morning for the seventh day. It's not there in the text. There is no evening and morning for the seventh day. And so, well, I said, maybe we're still in the seventh day. And indeed, if you read on in the Bible, you discover that there are three places where it tells us we're still in God's seventh day. Live your lives so that you will enter into God's seventh day of rest. Hebrews 4, for example. And so the seventh day is not yet finished. Now, part of my story was I began getting serious about astronomy and physics when I was seven years of age. In fact, I was reading five books on physics and astronomy per week. And when I was 10 or 11, my parents got concerned. They thought I was being obsessed. I don't know where they got that from. But uh, they wound up buying our family this big, thick book on evolutionary biology, just trying to get me to study something that wasn't physics and astronomy. I was the only one in the family that read the book. But I told my parents after reading it, Mom, Dad, the numbers don't add up. We got all the speciation before humanity and hardly any afterwards. Can you tell me why? They said, go ask your science teachers. I asked my science teachers, and they said, well, you know those professors at the university. Go talk to them. I talked to them. They didn't have a clue. Age 17, I pick up the Bible, read the opening chapter, and I said, this answers the fossil record enigma. For six days, God creates. That explains why we see so many speciation events uh, before God creates Adam and Eve. But once God creates Eve, he stops his work of creation, which explains why we see hardly any speciation events today. It's the Bible and the Bible alone that answers the fossil record enigma. For six days, God creates. On the seventh day, it stops. Also explains why so many scientists in biology say we see no evidence for the supernatural handiwork of God. Because most research biologists are focusing on the human era. And during that era, God stops his work of creation. All they're going to see is a natural process. But also explains why so many astronomers are believers in God, because our data comes from the past. Most of our data comes from the six days of creation, and we see the supernatural handiwork of God everywhere. So again, remember that. For six days, God creates. On the seventh day, he stops. If you want to read about this in more detail, I've devoted a whole book to this, A Matter of Days, basically making the point that if you integrate throughout the entire Bible, looking at all two dozen-plus creation texts in the Bible, and interpret them literally and consistently, it's clear that these creation days in Genesis 1 are six consecutive long periods of time. Therefore, there is no contradiction between the time scale of creation that the Bible teaches and what we get from geophysics and astrophysics. But I want to devote the rest of the time to the events of the creation days. And creation day one, let there be light. Now notice the text doesn't say here that God created the light or made the light. He did that when he created the universe, Genesis 1.1. Here it says, let there be light. Basically saying, let the light that I created now appear on the surface of the earth. And this is when God transformed the atmosphere from being opaque to translucent. And then we move into creation day two. And it's a very abbreviated text. 
Of the six creation days, we get the least on creation day two. It just simply says, let there be water above and water below. And this has led to a lot of theological debate, but I would argue that that debate is unnecessary. One reason why Moses could afford to be so brief about creation day two is he knew that the people already had the book of Job. The book of Job is the oldest book in the Bible. And the book of Job goes into great detail on creation day two. The entirety of Job 37 and the first half of Job 38 are all about creation day two. And if you look at those texts in Job, it talks about how God designed a water cycle so that we get multiple forms of liquid precipitation and multiple forms of frozen precipitation and how we need all those different forms of liquid and frozen precipitation to have human civilization and all the continents of the earth. Now, I'm not going to go into detail because I don't have time this morning, but we do have this television documentary, Journey Toward Creation. It's now available in 11 different languages and has been shown on six different national television networks. And uh, one case, illegally, we had a broadcast into Iran and uh, Farsi. Uh, you know, Iran's a place where it's illegal to have a TV antenna uh, in your uh, roof, uh, but they all have them. They kind of put them underneath the roof, and they're able to pull in uh, satellite TV. So we broadcast this in there. But that documentary explains the miracles of Creation Day 1 and Creation Day 2 basically how the moon-forming event was very carefully crafted so we both get light coming through the surface of the Earth and this amazing water cycle. <coughs> Creation Day 3, it says, let dry ground appear. And this is when God transforms our planet from being a water world to where we got oceans and continents coexisting. Now, when I was in my early teenage years, I was taught that the continents had always been here. But I remember reading uh, into the uh, more scientifically challenging texts and recognized that that was a consensus in the scientific community, but there was no evidence that the continents had always been here. It was simply a presumption that the continents had always been here. So this was the textbook story in the 1950s. Now, when I enrolled at the University of British Columbia in the 1960s, there were two professors there in the geophysics department that were part of a three-man team that launched the discipline of plate tectonics. And they taught the very first course in the world on plate tectonics theory. Now, I was a sophomore undergraduate student, but they allowed me to take the class. So I got to hear from the people who actually launched the discipline. And they said, no longer do we believe that the continents have always been here. Rather, this is a story they taught in their course, that the continents gradually cover more and more of the surface of the Earth. And I remember going up to those professors after one of their lectures saying, you know, you're saying it's somewhere between zero and 10% is where it starts. Is it possible that it could start right at zero? And they said, yeah, that's possible. Uh, we just think it's somewhere between zero and 10. And so I kind of held that. I wasn't yet a Christian, but I realized that the Bible taught that the world began with no continents. So it was encouraging me to discover that indeed that that was a possibility. Well, jump forward to the year 2000. 
This is when plate tectonics has now been buttressed uh, with measurements of the past history, the buildup of the continental land masses. And this is the story that they told. How indeed Earth began as a water world. Then you get some small volcanic islands, then plate tectonics kicks in, but then you got this period where you got very aggressive growth of the continental land masses. It happens when the Earth is a little bit less than half of its present age. Where does Genesis 1 put it? A little bit less than halfway through the story of the six creation days. So I was very encouraged that it got the time scale right. But what has happened a few months ago is that geophysicists recognize that the buildup of the continental land masses is very tightly tied to the great oxygenation events. And so this is now the new story of the growth of the continental land masses. Now what I want you to recognize is that over the past 70 years, as we learn more and more about the history of the growth of the continental land masses, it's come into more and more precise sync with what Genesis taught thousands of years ago. Because as you read Genesis, it's making clear that the great bulk of the continents were created on the beginning of creation day three. And if you want to read about this, every week I write a blog called Today's New Reason to Believe, which basically makes the point that every week that goes by, we have a stronger scientific case for the Christian faith. And by the way, if I had time, I could write one every day. There's at least four or five research papers published every day that make a stronger case for the Christian faith. And if you're really interested where you can keep up with that is go to my Twitter page. I don't tweet like Donald Trump. What I do instead is I only give tweets on scientific research papers that give us more evidence for the Christian faith, and I always give you a link right to the research paper so you can see it for yourself. Uh, but my June 11th uh, blog, Today's New Reason to Believe, goes into detail about this latest scientific discovery. Now, I've debated the executive director of the Skeptic Society, Michael Shermer, four different times on four different university campuses. Every time I've debated him, he claims that Genesis got it wrong because it states that plants show up on the continents uh, before we get animals in the oceans. And he says the fossil record has it the opposite, that we have fossils of animals in the oceans first, and we don't get fossils of vegetation on the land masses till much later. In those debates, I responded by making the point, animals have skeletons and shells. Therefore, their remains will be preserved for hundreds of millions of years. Plants don't have that advantage. So we would anticipate that plants would decay so rapidly we're not going to have the fossils. <coughs> but what has happened since those four debates, first there was a paper published in Nature where they said we don't have the fossils, but we got the isotope evidence that tells us that vegetation was just as abundant on the continents for 200 million years before we get the first animals showing up in the oceans. And then in 2011, Another paper was published in the British journal Nature saying, we now have fossils. Now, what they had was fossil parts. The biggest part they had was a millimeter in diameter. But it was such that they were able to conclude that vegetation has been abundant on the continents 
for 600 million years before the first appearance of animals. Then we move to creation day four. And here it says, let there be the great lights. Now notice once again, it doesn't say that this is when God created the sun, moon, and stars. This is when they appear for the first time to creatures on the surface of the earth. And we get that if you read the whole verse, verse 14. Let there be the great lights so they'll serve as signs to mark seasons, days, and years. The only life forms that need those signs are animals. If you're a microbe, it doesn't matter. You don't need to know where the sun, moon, and stars are in the sky. But every animal species does. Now, today we understand what was responsible for the atmosphere becoming clear enough that animals on the surface can actually see where the sun, moon, and stars are in the sky. It has to do with the oxygenation events. Now, you see that little bump there about uh, two and a half billion years ago? That was the oxygenation event that caused the exponential growth in the continental land masses. That's the first great oxygenation event. The second great oxygenation event happened 580 million years ago, where the oxygen in the atmosphere went from less than 1% up to 8%. Now, just a few months ago, a team of physicists did a laboratory experiment where they took the components of Earth's atmosphere and varied the oxygen content from a tenth of a percent all the way up to 10% to see what would happen. And what they discovered is if you're below 1%, the atmosphere is so extremely hazy that creatures on the surface of the Earth can't see the sun, moon, and stars. They can see the light, but not the sun, moon, and stars. Now what I'm gonna do in the next few slides is show you the results of this physics experiment. Basically show you just what the haziness is like as you go from less than 1% oxygen up to 8% oxygen. And what I'm gonna show you here is a mountain in Colorado. This is called Engineer Peak. And so this is what Engineer Peak would look like if you're half a mile away and you only got 1% oxygen. You can barely make out that there's a mountain there. And as the oxygen content goes up to 2%, the mountain becomes a little more clearly visible. And as we go 1% steps up towards 4, 5, and 6, and finally up to 8, you can now see an object in the sky that was totally impossible to see when it was less than 1% oxygen. So it basically demonstrates that with the latest scientific research, we can establish that Genesis got it right. On creation day four is when the atmosphere went from translucent to transparent. <coughs> and again, you can read about that in detail in my blog uh, dated June 18th that you can find at reasons.org. And now we know this is the full oxygen history of the Earth. <coughs> How the oxygen content jumped from less than 1% to 8% and you get the Avalon explosion of animals 575 million years ago. This is where the Earth is transformed from nothing but microbes and colonies of microbes to animals with body sizes two meters across. But these are animals without brains or hearts or a digestive tract. 8% oxygen is not enough to support those kinds of animals. There's an extinction event where these animals get wiped out. 
And less than half a million years after that extinction event, we get the Cambrian explosion. But between those two events, the oxygen content goes from 8% to 10%. And now immediately, we have animals with hearts and brains and eyes, circulatory systems, and digestive tracts. In fact, every phyla of life we have on planet Earth today shows up at the very base of the Cambrian explosion. And so you get these animals. And this is what Creation Day 5 says, let the oceans swarm with these uh, creatures, these sea creatures. Now, the problem for the evolutionists is these animals show up immediately. There is no time delay. You go from none of these creatures uh, up to the Avalon animals, and then you go from no Avalon animals up to the Cambrian animals. No time delay. Richard Dawkins, in a book he wrote on this, says these animals come out of nowhere with no evolutionary history. Moreover, when they show up, we see that we have optimal uh, ecological relationships. There's no time delay uh, in the optimization of the predator-prey relationships. They're optimized immediately. And this is what uh, we get from Kevin Peterson, one of the world's leading evolutionary biologists. He wrote a review on the Cambrian explosion where he says elucidating the materialistic basis uh, for the Cambrian explosion has become more elusive, not less, the more we know about the event itself. And if you get my book, Improbable Planet, I give quotes from seven different leading evolutionary biologists, none of them believers, all declaring that the Cambrian and Avalon explosions are a profound challenge to any naturalistic evolutionary explanation for the history of life. Indeed, the more we learn, uh, the more impossible it is to force a naturalistic interpretation on the history of life. Now, creation day five, we see the second use only of the Hebrew word bara to create something brand new that never existed before. Here it's referring to the birds and the sea mammals. And it's basically making the point that this is the first time we see soulish animals. Animals that are not just physical, but soulish. Soulish in that they're endowed with mind, will, and emotions so that they can form relationships with one another and more importantly, relationships with a higher species. They're designed to relate to us and serve and please us. And I've cited a number of books in Navigating Genesis making the point there is no naturalistic explanation for these soulish features. You might be able to explain the physical features of these animals through chemistry and physics but you can't explain their emotions, or their will, or their mind. That's a non-physical component. And then we move into creation day six. Now, a number of skeptics have said this is clearly where Genesis gets it wrong, because a fossil record tells us that land mammals predate sea mammals. However, what they're failing to recognize, creation day six is not addressing God creating the first land mammals. It doesn't even use the word for nefesh here. Instead, it uses three different Hebrew words to describe three different subcategories of land mammals. And the three that it mentions are the short-legged land mammals, a reference to rodents. You say, why does it single out rodents? It's thanks to rodents that humans, who are wonderfully designed for a hot climate, 
were able to move into a cold climate because they were able to domesticate these uh, rodents. And then uh, one of the things about these rodents, they have small body sizes. The only way they can maintain their high body temperature is growing thick, luxuriant fur. And early humans recognized that this was an easy source of clothing material and hence were able to displace creatures that were adapted for a cold climate, even though were adapted for a warm climate. And the text mentions two different kinds of long-legged land mammals, those that are easy to tame, a reference to the herbivores we use for agricultural industry, and long-legged land animals, mammals that are difficult to tame. They don't make good farm animals, but they make excellent household companions, reference to the carnivores. And I describe this in quite a bit of detail in my book, Hidden Treasures in the Book of Job, because again, Genesis is very brief about these higher animals. But the book of Job has got many chapters, particularly Job 38 through to Job 42, that addresses how God designed these animals to serve and please us. And last of all, the text talks about God creating human beings. <coughs> Here again, we see the use of the word bara to create something brand new that never existed before. We're the one and only species, according to the Bible, that's body, soul, and spirit. As God designed the birds and mammals to serve a higher species, he designed us to serve a higher being. We're the one species that has the equipment, uh, the non-physical equipment, to form a relationship, to discover God and form a relationship uh, with him. And again, scientists have struggled to find a naturalistic explanation for the consciousness of human beings and our spirit attributes. I've got 50 books in my library where they try to do that. They all conclude with saying, we haven't got a clue. They're looking in the wrong area. This is not a physical property, it's a spiritual property. And we've written a book on this uh, called, uh, Who Was Adam? But here's the bottom line. And this is a huge factor in my becoming a Christian looking at the Bible and seeing that the reference frame is the surface of the earth, the definition for the creation days is six consecutive long periods of time, and from that perspective, the Bible gets a perfect score on the description and the order of the ten creation events. Now, part of my journey was looking at the other religions, and there's over a hundred different creation stories in the different religions of the world, the one that places second to the Bible is the Enuma Elish. It gets two out of 14 right. Say, so how do the rest score? They all score zero. The Bible was the only one that got a perfect score. And that was my first piece of evidence that the Bible did not come from a mere human source. Only the one that did the deed could give us an account that was this accurate in predicting future scientific discoveries. And so it was a major step in my coming to the conclusion that the Bible was the inspired, inerrant Word of God, and hence motivated me to sign my name in the back of a Gideon Bible, uh, giving my life uh, to uh, Jesus Christ. That happened when I was 19 years of age. It took another eight years before I was actually able to meet a Christian and get to know him. Say, how could that happen? Didn't you go to church? I did. But you know, the churches I tried in Canada were either churches where nobody believed the Bible was the Word of God, or they were a cult. And it wasn't until I came to the United States 
and joined the faculty of the California Institute of Technology that I met Christians, and those Christians helped me to find a church. And seven months after attending that church, they put me on the pastoral staff, and I'm still on the pastoral staff of the very first church I ever got involved in. Anyway, you can read more about this in our book, Navigating Genesis. We have them outside, and if you don't want to purchase it, feel free to pick up that free chapter. And the latest thing we've done is we transformed the uh, book into a video series. And again, I mentioned, people don't like to be preached at in the 21st century. Uh, they want to be instructed with an opportunity to dialogue and debate. So we've set up these eight DVDs where I only speak for 20 minutes, and then we have an hour of Q&A and dialogue with unbelievers that are part of the audience. So feel free to take advantage of that as a teaching tool. But here's the bottom line. The more we learn about science, the more reasons we gain to believe that the Bible is God's Word. And it's the Bible that tells us that God gave us two books, the book of nature and the book of Scripture. And reasons to believe are all about showing you how to use the book of nature to bring people to the book of Scripture and the foot of the cross of Jesus Christ. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the KPC Podcast. For more messages and information, visit kpc.org.